sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 5 this evening. Matthew chapter 5 as you turn there. And of course, we are experiencing the after effects of Pastor Steve's favorite day where everyone's a little bit tired. Perhaps it was a little bit harder to, to get up this morning or to get here on time. Uh, I remember to turn my mic on just now. There we go. And Pastor Steve's on a beach somewhere dealing with the effects of it. So I feel like that's not fair. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. But I hope the Lord blesses his time away. And he most certainly deserves it and has earned it. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I can remember thinking through different sermons that I've heard that no one actually does what's being preached. That it's like a nice ideal that the preacher is putting out there. But I didn't really think anyone lived that way. Because when I heard what was preached, I said to myself, that's impossible. That's impossible. And you know, I was right. It was impossible for me, but it was not impossible for Christ in me. One of his most famous teachings, the Lord Jesus, is to love your enemies, right? He told us to love the brethren, but also to love our enemies. And that sounds nice. And you could get up and you, and as some people say, it preaches. But is it really possible to love your enemies? And what does it mean? Is it a change of attitude where we have to act all sweet and lovey-dovey towards people that we'd rather not? And what is an enemy? What is an enemy? I don't think that we have enemies, perhaps. Maybe that thought comes into your mind. I don't think we have enemies. Not like the Bible times when you could look back at the Old Testament and you could be an Israelite and think about the Philistines, right? We don't, we don't think about enemies in the same way. And so if we don't really have enemies, if we aren't immediately worried about being invaded by Canada, do we really have to do what Jesus says in loving our enemies? Is it meant for us today? What does it even mean? And why should we do it? Because frankly, if you have any enemies, they're probably in your mind jerks. And so you think, why would I show them any love? Well, Jesus's teaching on this topic is a little bit deeper than I think oftentimes we remember. We remember the part about loving your enemies, but he follows that up with some very important things. So let's look together in Matthew 5, verse 43. The word of God says this. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have they? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Let's pray together. Father, once more we ask for the blessing of your, uh, the blessing of your Spirit on your word. May you give us the gift of illumination tonight that we have understanding of it. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ has a crowd of people listening to him, and it's early on in his ministry, but it's to the point where when people hear that Jesus is somewhere preaching or performing miracles, that they turn out from the cities, even if it's into the middle of nowhere, to hear what he has to say. His name has become rather famous in the area of Galilee, where his ministry 
is mostly limited to during the beginning part of his earthly life and ministry. And what he's doing in this sermon is correcting many false or many incomplete teachings of the Pharisees. You say, how do the average Israelite, the, the average Israelite person, how does that person know what the Old Testament says, know what the Bible says? Well, they've been taught it by the Pharisees and by the scribes in their different synagogues and the different cities that they live in. And unfortunately, by this time, hundreds of years has passed since there was open revelation from God. And a lot of what was true with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that was true with Moses and Joshua, and that was true with King David and Solomon, a lot of those things that we would have looked at as true biblical faith have started to decline. And a very empty sort of religion had risen in its place. One that is much more about man's commandments than God's commandments. One that's about looking religious, but not actually being holy. And so Jesus corrects these things. In verse number 43, he begins, he have heard that it hath been said. In other words, he's, he's throwing back to what they may have heard in shul, in their Sunday school equivalent back in the day. They may have heard these teachings from the Pharisees. And you can almost imagine him giving a side glance to the Pharisees that were undoubtedly in his audience, saying that you've heard that this has been taught. And what is it that they've heard? It says, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. I don't think that this would have surprised anybody. They honestly would have heard something like this. And when we talk about love, we're talking about action. We're talking about the selfless, sacrificial doing of good on behalf of another person. Not because you're getting anything back. It's not just a feeling. It's a, it's a decision that you make to behave a certain way. And it says that thou shalt love thy neighbor. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Well, how many of you feel like you don't know your neighbors as well as you would like? Anybody feel like that? You know, we come and go very often from our homes without spending time out and around our homes. But think about what it would have been like to live in Bible times. You didn't just hop in your car and drive somewhere. You probably didn't even grit on a horse and ride somewhere because you wouldn't have had access to something like that. If you had an animal, it was most likely some sort of donkey or mule, and you didn't go very far in order to... It was dangerous to travel in between towns. So who were your neighbors? The neighbors were the people of your social circle. They were the people that you shared your life with. If there was a problem, neighbors banded together in order to help one another. If there was a fire, if there was some sort of need that happened, they would end up working. To, and because their neighbors are physically close to you, you already look at them as though they're part of your community. They would look like you. They would most likely think like you. They would most likely speak like you. And they were part of your in-group, right? And you were to love them. You were to love them. If you were an Israelite, you would have immediately thought of other Jewish people, other children of Israel, as part of loving your neighbor. These are people that you already know and are a part of your social circle. Oftentimes, when you assisted them, they would assist you back. It was a reciprocal relationship where everybody benefited. So though we might not know our neighbors today, we lived in Tennessee in a house for a while, and we, I don't think we ever met the neighbors directly behind us, did we? I don't think we, they had, they had, uh, I, I think it was supposed to be a six-foot privacy fence, but the way that they hid from us, it felt like a 10-foot privacy fence. We have no idea who lived behind us, and that's the way they wanted it. 
That's the way they wanted it. Very different in Bible times. And to hate, it says, hate thine enemy. Thou shalt hate thine enemy. Hate. Strong hostility. Great dislike. And if you had an opportunity to do good to them, you wouldn't do it because you hated them. And if you had an opportunity to hurt them and it didn't take you too much time, you would have gone out of your way to do it. You would have cursed them with your mouth because they would have deserved it. You would have withheld any blessing from them because they would have deserved it. If you knew something that could have helped them, you would have kept your mouth shut because they deserved it. In fact, the Pharisees taught that your hatred of them and all of the good that you withhold from them and the evil that you might do to them is part of God's judgment on them for being the wrong kind of person. But what is an enemy? What is an enemy? I don't know what you picture when you think of an enemy, but oftentimes I think we get in our minds maybe a soldier on the other side of a, a battlefield. That's our enemy. Or maybe someone in a dark cloak in an alleyway that is seeking to do you or your family harm and they, they come out to mug you. That person's an enemy. Or maybe someone that's trying to destroy your name, destroy your business, and they are out to do whatever it takes. If they can, they burn down the place where you work in order to, to triumph over you. But how many of us really have people like that in our lives? Right? You, you may have had a bad neighbor that you thought of as, as an enemy, but were they really trying to kill you? And so I think that at times we say, well, I don't have any enemies, so I don't have to worry about doing this. I don't really have any enemies, but let's, let's think about that. That word enemy means anybody that opposes you, that is antagonistic towards you, that would hurt you. Some might take it further. Those that, that oppress you would be an enemy. And though you may not have somebody staring down the barrel of a weapon at you across a battlefield, is there anybody in this world that you've run into that opposed you, that antagonized you? that tried to make life hard for you and for yours? What about somebody who made it hard for your children or your grandchildren? One of the quickest ways to somebody's heart, my father always told me, was to help their children. And one of the quickest ways to make it on their, their uh, blacklist was to do something to hurt their children. Very, very quick that those things would do it. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Do you have anybody that you avoid? That whenever you're in a room with them, you can barely be civil with them because of all the times that they've caused trouble. That is what it means to be an enemy. And the Pharisees would have said, it's okay to hate them. But Jesus is about to change everything here. This is normal worldly thinking. If you're a part of my group, if you help me and I help you and we know each other, then I'm going to love you. But if you're my enemy and you're against me and you oppose me, then I'm not going to help you. In fact, I'm going to hate you. This is how the world may think. But Jesus said in verse 44, But I say unto you, once again, the word of life, the living word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is bringing forth here his ability, his authority, to give further explanation on the word of God and on the teachings that they may have heard about from the Pharisees. When it comes down to it, Jesus is not just another teacher, not just another rabbi, not just another religious leader. Oftentimes, people want to take Jesus and group him with people like Muhammad, with people like Gandhi, with people like the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, with people like Confucius or Lao Tzu, those from Eastern philosoph uh, philosophical traditions, even though they might not be religions, and they want to group them all together. But can I tell you that Jesus Christ made completely different claims than those men did? He claimed to be the very Son of God. 
which in the, the Eastern mindset meant that he was of the same stuff that God is of, and he was claiming to be deity. He did not hide the fact that he did so. He made the claim that he was the only way to the Father. You may not like what he had to say, but you have to deal with what he said, because either it's true and he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or it's untrue. And if it's untrue, either it's untrue and he knows it's untrue, which means he's lying, or it's untrue and he doesn't know it's untrue, which means he's crazy or he's a lunatic. That's the Lord Liar Lemma, or Le Lord Liar Lunatic Trilemma that people sometimes put out there. You say, what does that have to do with anything? You can call Jesus many things, but leaving him as a good teacher or as a moral man is not one of our options. We must deal with the claims that Christ has made, and his authority brings him above all of the other teaching rabbis or Pharisees that may have been out there in his day. And one of the things that they came away from Jesus' sermons with is that he spoke as one that had authority, as opposed to just repeating the scriptures. What did he say? Thou shalt, excuse me, he said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Wait, that doesn't seem right. Doesn't that seem backwards? We're supposed to hate our enemies, not love our enemies. People, and when you say enemies, what we get is some examples that are given here for us. People that curse us, that speak evil about us. People that hate us. People that despitefully use us, that mistreat us, that take advantage of us. People that oppress us or hurt us or cause us suffering. These, these are the types of people that are being referred to. And we're supposed to love them and do good unto them. Verse 44, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. When they speak evil of you, you speak good of them. When they lie about you and assassinate your character, you find something good about them to say. And while blessing them, you can't curse them at the same time. Blessing and cursing ought not come out of the same mouth. And so they may talk evil about you. They may gossip about you. They may try and destroy your reputation. But we don't do it back, Jesus said. We don't do it back. We bless them that curse us. We do good to them that hate us. They wouldn't go out of their way to help you, but you ought to go out of your way to help them. If you were in need, they would just walk right by. But if they're in need... We ought to do good to them and to pray for them, which despitefully use you to pray for them. What does he mean to pray for them? Well, to ask for God's blessing on them. If they have needs, pray that God meets those needs. If they need safety and protection, pray that God provides that safety and protection. If, if they're having some sort of need of guidance, pray that God would show them and give them guidance, even though they mistreat us, even though they mistreat us. So while they're mistreating us, we pray for them. And while they're persecuting us or oppressing us, and the Jewish people had plenty of oppressors over the years, the most recent to this biblical passage would have been the Romans. Can you imagine an occupying force being here in America, having taken us over, and someone saying, you know those soldiers that are occupying your town? You need to pray for them. But they treat us like dirt. Yes? But you need to, why? Why should we pray for them? I don't want to do this. Exactly. Because it's supernatural. What Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount is a higher way of living than any man, woman, boy, or girl could ever live on their own. Not only can they not do it, but they're not going to want to do it. 
And so the Spirit of God must give us the heart of God so that we can, as we find out in the next verse, behave like God. It says in verse number 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. What's he mean? You have to do these things in order to be saved and become a child of God? No, but if you're going to look like your Father, if you're going to have the resemblance of the family of God, this is how you behave. This is how you behave. If you're going to be known, and, and some of you, I don't, I don't know if you look like your parents, but some people have very strong, very strong family re resemblance. How many of you, you, you strongly resemble your parents? Any of you strongly resemble your parents? Right? There's, there's a strong resemblance in, in my uh, wife's side of the family. There's a strong... I can remember times when people would come up, especially my, my brother-in-law, Steve, and they'd come up and they'd say, you are Becky Prince's son, aren't you? I mean, they, they knew right like that when they met him who exactly it was. And people who come to our church immediately put together the, the family if other people uh, have not been introduced to them yet. If we want to be recognized as the children of God, then we're going to have to resemble God. But because God the Father is a spirit, we're not going to resemble him and the shape of our eyes or uh, the, the type of hair that we have. We're going to resemble him in our behavior, in our attitude, and in our actions. And here it says that if you want to be like your father, you're going to have to treat people that curse you. You're going to have to respond with blessing. And if the people hate you, you're going to have to respond with good. And if people mistreat you, you're going to have to respond with praying for them. Why? Notice the, the examples that the Lord leaves for us. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. What's that? What do you mean he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good? Sunshine is very important when your life is connected to the land. If you're growing crops, if you're taking care of animals, You've got to have sunshine because the plants don't grow without sunshine. And if you don't have any plants, then your, your cattle don't have anything to eat. And most of culture was agrarian. Most jobs were tied to the land. And even if you didn't have a job full-time as a shepherd or something like that, you still had the family flock or you had the family plot of land or garden where you grew a lot of your own food. And it says here that God makes his son. By the way, did you know that the sun belongs to God? Sun, S-U-N. The sun in the sky belongs to God. He made it. Amen. And it's his by right of creation. I, everything around us that we enjoy, the tides, the moon, uh, the air that we breathe, all of it belongs to the Lord. And he still makes the, the sun to shine on the evil and the good. So evil people benefit from God's blessing. Just like the good benefit from God's blessing. The other example he gives is that he sends rain. Same thing applies. Rain is necessary for life because you've got to have water. And in the Bible areas, there is droughts. There's famine because there's not enough water at times. So you've got to have rain. And he makes the rain to fall on those that are just, those that are righteous, and the unjust, those that are unrighteous. For those that follow God's law and for those that don't follow God's law. For those that do the things that please the Lord and don't do the things that please the Lord. God blesses the evil, and the good. Think about that for a second. Here's a person who curses the, the true and living God with his, with his very own mouth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he curses him, says he wants nothing to do with him, goes and worships his vile pagan gods with their vile pagan rituals, 
has nothing good to say about God or his people, and yet he gets to breathe God's air. And he gets to eat the food that God makes to grow in this world that he gave us. Why? Because of how good God is. And if we are going to behave like our Father, then we are, if we're going to look like our Father, then we're going to have to do more than what is normally required of us. Notice how God treats people. Look in, in John chapter 3 and verse number 16. A very familiar verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the people that belonged to him. For God so loved everybody that talked good about him. For God so loved everybody that appreciated him. For God so loved everybody that prayed every day, read their Bible, attended church, gave, and shared the gospel. No, it says here, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You mean for the people that are wicked and evil, he gave his Son? Yes, because honestly, that's everybody. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Did he give his son even for those people that would reject him and never accept him? Absolutely he did. Christ tasted death for every man. Notice in Romans chapter 5 what we're told. Think about while we were still enemies, what Christ did for us. How does God treat his enemies? Well, verse number 8. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for us, not when we were his friends, not when we did good, not when we were his neighbor or part of his group, when we were sinners and when we were as far from God as we could possibly be, alienated from the life of God, strangers to him, that's when he loved us and gave Christ for us. So if we are going to be like our father, it's not just going to be what everybody else is doing. Godliness is greater than that. Jesus brings it back to some very apt questions in verse number 46. For, for, if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Imagine this. Somebody loves you. They do good things for you. They speak kindly to you. When you're hurt, they try and console you. They try and bind up your wounds. When you have a need, they meet it. When you're sad, they try and cheer you up. When you're happy, they rejoice with you. When you hear about what they say about you to other people, they, they say the kindest and the most generous things about you. They love you, and they show it in action every day. And so, you love them back. What's so special about that? There's nothing particularly godly or amazing about that, Jesus says. What reward do you get for loving people that love you back? Well, of course you love them because they love you. He says, do not even the publicans the same? Who are the publicans? Let's, let's replace that with the worst sinners. That would have been what everyone would have thought when you said the publicans. Do not even the worst sinners the same? I want you to think about the most despicable way of life that might be out there. There's probably someone who has blood all over their hands, that is working for a drug cartel, that has done all sorts of unspeakable, horrible things in the pursuit of wealth and power and pleasurable company. And even that person, with all of the evil that they've done, do they not respond 
when their own mother loves them with love? When one of their compatriots loves them? This is, this is hard to believe, but do you believe that in World War II, even the enemies of the Allied powers, the Nazis, do you not believe that they would have returned the love that other people gave them? Probably would have been easy to do. But we're called for something greater than that. Now, who were the publicans? The publicans, the reason why we called them the worst sinners, the reason why we did that was they were tax collectors. Now, no one likes tax collectors. We're getting to that time of year where if you haven't done your taxes, you're probably thinking about doing your taxes, and, and you're probably not excited about it. And you don't like tax collectors. You don't like people that work for the IRS. But can you imagine how bad it would be for people that collect taxes for the enemy and make you pay them? That's how your average Jewish person would have felt for these people that were collecting taxes, not on behalf of Jerusalem, but on behalf of Rome. And they were Jewish people themselves, traders, that decided that they were going to get a better way of life by collecting the taxes, using Roman muscle and soldiers to see the job done. They were looked at as traitors. Not only were they tax collectors. And so they were looked at as the worst element of society. And even they would have responded in love to those that love them. Verse number 47. If you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Imagine that the only person, the only people that you welcome into your home, into your life, are your brothers. That community, your neighbors, the people that you know and that think like you and act like you and, and, and want the same things that you want. He says, if those are the only people that you welcome into your home, welcome into your life, dare I say, welcome into a church, he says here, what are you doing that's better than anybody else? Because even, again, the publicans, the worst elements of society are doing this. It's not admirable, is what he's saying. It's not admirable, is what he's saying. Verse number 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Well, that, that is a tall order. <laughs> that is a tall order. You know what that word perfect means, right? Lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Just like God the Father is perfect, we ought to be too. And just like he loves the unlovely and he loves the evil and he loves the unjust and, and he still blesses them even though they don't deserve it, we ought to love the unlovely and the unjust and to bless them. Even though they don't look like us, even though they don't act like us, they don't think like us, they don't eat the same foods, even though they, they have a completely different motivation or desire or goal, we're still challenged to love them. And here's where the comparison comes in. Here's where the comparison how ought we to compare ourselves to the Father who's in heaven? We should be perfect as he is perfect. We should strive to emulate him, to be like our Father. The Pharisees oftentimes compared themselves to the average people walking around. And they had the excuse of having a religious job, a religious calling. And so they could devote themselves fully to things like memorizing scripture and reading and, and praying and fasting. And they made a big show of it. They would make a big show of it so everybody knew how amazing they were. And people praised them for it. 
And because they got praised for it, they got the better seats inside the synagogues and they got invited to certain places because, wow, what an honor to have them here. But as we mentioned, there was something lacking in the heart of the vast majority of the Pharisees, and that was true faith in the true and living God. They become tied down with a dead religion, a man-centered religion. And so we ought not to be like the Pharisees. We ought not be like them and compare ourselves to others and say, well, at least I'm better than they are. That's not the goal. It's easy to find someone that's worse than you, isn't it? It's very easy to find someone that's worse than you and to say, well, look how much better I am than that person. But when we compare ourselves to the Father, as we're challenged to, we find ourselves seeing a standard that we never really quite measure up to. In fact, not do we not quite measure up to, we, we don't even come close to measuring up to. So what do we take away from Jesus' teaching here about loving your enemies? Well, I think the first thing we ought to do is to identify our enemies. Is to identify our enemies. I don't have evil men in dark cloaks following me around that have enemy labeled on them, like in some game. I don't have soldiers on the battlefield in clearly delineated lines. I'm not fighting against the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. So does that mean that I have no enemies? And the answer to that is, sadly, no. It would be great if we had no enemies. But if you don't have any earthly enemy, and you probably do, you at least have the devil. Because he is, by definition, the adversary. He is against you. He most certainly is against you. So we know that that's true. But let's go to the earthly enemies, the enemies that Jesus is talking about here. Is there anybody that antagonizes you, that makes life hard for you, that gets in your way, that if you could, you would avoid them, that you get tempted to blow your top whenever you're around them? I mean, it's just hard to keep it under wraps because they are so aggravating. And they're wrong. They're unbelievably wrong on so many things, and yet they sit there talking like they know what they're talking about, and they don't. I need to give them a piece of my mind, right? These are the people that I'm talking about. These are the enemies that we encounter, those that would possibly try to hurt us. Maybe you find them at work. Maybe they're co-workers. Maybe they're a client that you're dealing with. Maybe you find them at school, and there's somebody that's at school that is always bothering you. Have you ever heard of the concept of a frenemy? Right? The concept of a frenemy. I never heard that term when I was a kid. But it's somebody that you're sort of friends with, but you also sort of want to hit them. It's like your rivals. You know, you, you kind of hang out with them, but oh, man, they get under my skin. I didn't realize that that was a term, when I, but there is definitely someone in my peer group that I remember when we all hung out, he would be there, and I never liked him. I never liked him. And you know what? He never liked me. The gall of him to not like me, right? I'm sure he had good reasons, because there are good reasons. Are there people who just grump at us every time we see them? Could be a neighbor. Could be somebody here at church. And you try and avoid them for it. Sadly, it could be somebody even inside of your own family, where things have devolved to such a point where if you could, you would just avoid them for the rest of your life and be just fine with that. Be just fine with that. 
We need to identify people that are our enemies so that we understand what it is we're being asked to do because we can't just get off by saying we have no one. Now, you may live a charmed life and feel like you have no enemies. That is wonderful. Don't go out and make enemies just so you can love them. Because the Bible also says, live peaceably with all men, as much as in you is able. But don't be surprised if you live for God and find yourself with enemies. The only way to not have them is to do nothing, stand for nothing, and say nothing. Is to give up everything that makes you distinctive as a believer until you would do nothing that would make anyone around you feel uncomfortable. Have you ever noticed that if you speak about Jesus in a group of people, that it causes an adverse reaction at times? I'm not talking about here at church, but I'm talking about out in the month. If you're open about your faith with people, some people are going to intentionally dislike you for it and want nothing to do with you. And if they still have to have something to do with you because, oh, let's say you work with them, now we have an enemy. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All of us. And so chances are, if we say we have no enemies, it may be because we're not standing boldly for Christ. I'm not saying be obnoxious so that you get enemies, but just remember that when people love darkness rather than light, and you bring light into a room, into a conversation, into somebody's light, into somebody's life, they're not going to like that. At least not at first. Identify your enemies. Secondly, we need to seek ways to bless them. We need to seek ways to bless them. Maybe it's in word, and we speak well of them. Maybe it's acts of kindness. We were just told about uh, going the second mile when somebody makes you do something. So you know that boss that you dislike? You know that boss that drives you nuts? Or that coworker that drives you nuts? Supervisor, teacher that drives you crazy? Right? None of you homeschooled kids raise your hand. Mom is watching. But they drive you. You know what you should do? Instead of giving them back the frustration that they give you, find a way to bless them. Because that's what the Father does. Find a way to speak good of them, to compliment them. You know, I don't, I don't have a ton of enemies that I could point out, but I have made a few people mad. I remember when we were starting the, the Good News, or when I started working with the Good News Club over at Maple, we're now at Pine because of how the school's rearranged, but when I was over at Maple, there were two Muslim teachers at that school. And uh, they, they were not happy that any of us were there. And they were not happy that the club was going on. You say, how do you know? Well, first of all, they glared at us. Well, how do you know they were Muslim? Well, they were wearing hijabs. And they were glaring at us whenever we would come in, walking in with our Bibles. I also know that they actively tried to get the teacher, who was the sponsor for the club, fired by looking for every little thing that she did not do according to what was required if she used any of the school's property for the club, she would try and, or they would try and, and get on her case to the principal and to the superintendent and just cause trouble to get the, the club to close because they didn't like the gospel of Jesus Christ being taught. And they would just sort of, I remember one time I needed to get in the building and the building was locked, right? And the, they're announcing the buses to be departed and the, the lady who opens the front door, she wasn't there. And there was one of those ladies standing right there and she refused to open the door, even though we had the, the, the right to be there and it cleared everything with the principal. You know, you know what we ended up doing? We ended up that year, uh, every, I think it was every first Friday of the month, 
something like that. We'd pop in on Thursday, and we put out a sign-up sheet in the, the teacher's lounge and said, what, what's your ideal drink from the coffee shop? And they'd sign up for it. And we'd go up here to the coffee shop, and we would get them all their, their coffee drinks, and then I'd get the cart from the kitchen, because there were a lot of them, sometimes there were more than 20 of them, and I would bring them in, and I'd leave them for them with their names on it inside the, the teacher's lounge at the beginning of Friday, because I figured Friday's a hard day, right? Or sometimes we would do it on a Monday, because Monday's a hard day. And we'd do that for them. You know what happened? It's so funny. We did that for a few months, and I ran into one of those two Muslim teachers. And I started coming in the building, and the building was locked. And she looked at me for a second like, hmm, what are you doing here? And then she said, are you the, are you the coffee guy? And I said, I am the coffee guy. And she said, oh, well, thank you. And then she opened the door for me, and I could get in the school building. It's a small thing, a small, small thing, to buy somebody a cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is that they asked for. But I tell you, those small acts of kindness are so rare in our world today, especially by people who you would assume to be your enemy. People that you would assume to be your enemy. Uh, I, saw, I saw an unusual post online that because of the kindness that they showed, if I have this right, the LaBelle family was invited to speak and teach inside of a mosque that's right near their house in, in Sierra Leone. I want you to think about that for a second. A mosque in that part of the world, invited in open church-planting Christian missionaries to teach. You say, how did they get in there? Well, I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't because they lined up with them doctrinally. It wasn't because of all the nice things they, that they said about Allah or about Muhammad or about Islam. It was because of the love that they showed people that would have been happy to remain as enemies, but they weren't happy to let them remain as enemies. And so they blessed them and did good to them. Seek ways to bless them. Show kindness to people unlike ourselves. And lastly, we ought to only compare ourselves with the Father. We ought to only compare ourselves to the Father. The, the Pharisees, they compared themselves with others, and so it was easy for them to seem holy or good enough. But compared to God, none of us measure up. And that leads us to two things. One is to always be striving to be like the Father. To always be striving to be like the Father to show his love. And, and the second part of that means great gratitude because we see his mercy and his grace. Knowing of how we ought to act and knowing how short we fall and the fact that we don't measure up to God's standard, though the we do the best we can, on those days when we mess up, it should lead us to a place of rejoicing in mercy that we have a merciful father and not one who is just an unkind taskmaster. Can I, can I make a suggestion? Beware of false humility in this. Beware of false humility. When, when somebody says that you did something that was good, maybe you blessed them uh, in some way around the church, or maybe you said a kind word and it meant a lot to them, make sure that you don't say, oh, it was nothing. Oh, that's nothing. It, it, was, it, was, it wasn't anything. There is a way for you to give glory to God and to still admit what the Lord has done in your life and through you. Because when we say it was nothing and it really blessed them, we're, we're denying something there in order to seem like we're lowly. I would recommend that you praise the Lord for it. Somebody says, oh, your Sunday school lesson was wonderful. You say, well, praise God that he used me to bless you. 
right? So when I say that we don't measure up, that's not to beat ourselves up all the time because we don't measure up and, and that false humility that can sometimes come out of that. I say we avoid that. If, if God lets you teach a good lesson, don't sit there and get a big head about it. Praise the Lord for it. Acknowledge it and say, well, the Lord helped me. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that fantastic? We live for the Father's approval, for him to say well done, and not for the approval of men. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment? Jesus' teaching here is a tall order. It's a very tall order. And in this time of invitation, I would like you to consider for a moment who might be classified as your enemy. And you might say, I love everybody. I don't have any enemies. Well, that, I'm not asking who do you hate. I'm saying who hates you? Who's against you? Who's antagonistic towards you? Who gives you a hard time just because they like to give you a hard time? Or who gives you a hard time because it benefits them, even if it makes life hard for you? Who is that person? Or people. Perhaps you have a person fixed in your mind right now, or maybe you have many people fixed in your mind. And now I want to ask you a question. Will you rely on the power of the Spirit of God to act lovingly toward them? To choose to love them? Oh, you may never have butterflies in your stomach when they walk in a room. They may never, your first reaction when you see them may not be to light your face up with a big smile. But perhaps, perhaps you can take a first step and say, how can I help them? Maybe I can, I can go the extra mile for them at work because that's where I encounter them. Maybe I can say something kind about them, though they never seem to have anything kind to say about me. Maybe they make fun of you about you being a Christian or about something about yourself that makes you very insecure. Maybe you can bless them back and say something kind about them in return. You will be surprised how it changes people. I know many of us are scoffing and we're very cynical and we think, you know what? It's not going to do anything if I'm nice to them. It's not going to change anything. They're not going to get saved because of it. They're not going to stop their ways and start coming to church. They're going to be exactly like this and I'm just going to waste my time and energy. Maybe. Maybe. But do you want to look like your father? Do you want to resemble this great God who has paid such a price that you might be his child? If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as Savior, you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. You want to put your life and influence in this church as a member or there's something completely different that the Lord has put on your heart and you want to come forward and use these, these stairs, this altar as a place of prayer or even right there in your seat. If God is moving in your heart, would you say yes to him? Father, I pray that you would help us to choose to love and to choose to bless those that irritate us. Help us through your supernatural power to be like you, that we might bless those that curse us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.